Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So we've been talking um, over the last couple of months from Paul's second epistle to the Church of Corinth, um, talking about embracing afflictions. And last week we started a little two-week um, hiatus, but really a heightening of what's going to be our Lord willing. Our passage we'll look at next week from Second Corinthians chapter ten, and in that passage, as we mentioned last week in Second Corinthians ten, we see that it says in verses three to six, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. To the obedience of Christ into being ready to punish all disobedience when your dis- your obedience is fulfilled. And though we're not going to talk about the the arguments and every high thing right now, um, we have been talking about this concept of spiritual warfare. We know from Ephesians chapter six, we wrestle not against um, flesh and blood, but we we are battling against Satan, against his dominions, against the spiritual um, darkness that's out there. And so in that, we're told that we are then to fight um, this spiritual battle um, with spiritual weapons. And so prayer and fasting is considered to be probably the, um, the primary weapon um, that we have in that situation. And so last week, as we began looking at this, we began talking about the concept of fasting. And we saw that fasting, by definition, is abstaining from food or drink for a period of time for a particular reason or cause. But as we then take that and we extrapolate it, if you would, apply it specifically to the spiritual realm, fasting is a temporal affliction of the physical body for a greater spiritual purpose. And so um, on the day of Yom Kippur, um, Yom Kippur became known as a day of affliction because the people were supposed to be afflicting their bodies as a, a means of focusing uh, tightening their focus upon God himself. And so as we began looking at it last week, we considered the call to fasting um, and considered the testimony of Christ and the testimony of the church. Um, we saw how Jesus gave testimony to the, the fact that fasting is something for us as his believers by his own example. In the, um, the uh, temptation in the wilderness that what we read um, of the temptations, the, the three that we read about when Satan came to tempt him, actually, um, probably there was a little bit more troublesome thing going on in those 40 days as well. But we're told that after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was greatly hungry, and Satan came and began to trouble him, tempt him, try him. The word periosmos there is a troublesome situation. And so Jesus, knowing that that trial, that tribulation, that temptation was coming, he prepared himself for his ministry and for the, the will of God in his life, Father, for what he was going to accomplish by um, preparing himself, consecrating himself uh, through fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That's not necessarily something we're going to do, but we, we saw that that was something that precedent-wise uh, Moses did um, when he went up to receive the commandments, and then he did it again uh, soon after that. 
And then Elijah did that as well after he had run from um, uh, Jezebel and went into the, the wilderness that he actually then, the, the Lord fed him, sustained him with uh, uh, some bread and some uh, liquid, and that then held him for the next 40 days. Jesus then, um, as part of the, the Sermon on the Mount, and you see there in Matthew 6, um, that's in the passage where he's going to give the, the, the model prayer to his disciples, and he states right off the bat, when you pray, and so on and so forth, and he tells them how to pray. But then right after that, he states, when you fast. And so there was an expectation of Christ that um, people would fast. And so when they fasted, this is how they were supposed to do it. We're going to come back to that passage today. Um, as a part of a proper fast. Um, and then in Matthew 9, um, he was challenged by the disciples of John, um, who brought to his attention that um, Jesus' disciples didn't fast, whereas the disciples of John and the Pharisees did fast. And they were asking, well, why is that? And Jesus answered that, that um, while the bridegroom was with them, there's rejoicing. There's no reason for fasting. There's no reason for that, that the time was going to come when the bridegroom was going to be taken away and his disciples indeed would then be fasting. Um, and so again, the concept of expectation along in there that they would be fasting. And then the exhortation um, in Matthew 17, that's the illustration, um, the situation when he came down from the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, his disciples, um, the rest of the disciples were um, being thronged by a mob, um, I think, uh, from the Jewish mindset that they were probably getting ready to be stoned um, because a man brought his um, demon-possessed son um, to him and wanted the demon to be cast out. They had been able to do that at other times. Um, and so now all of a sudden they're not able to do that. And so there is this mayhem going on. Jesus walks in um, in the midst of it all and says, what's going on? The father explains the situation, and uh, Jesus refers to them always little of faith, and um, bring the child to me. And so he casts the demon out. Later, the disciples then ask him, why weren't we able to do this? Um, Jesus responded with the statement um, that this kind only comes by prayer and fasting. And the idea is that if they had already been spending time in prayer and fasting, then they would have had the power be able to accomplish this but since they hadn't been they were powerless um, in this situation and so while jesus had been up on the mountain with peter james and john we're not sure what the disciples were doing but they weren't spending the time in prayer and fasting and so um i'm thinking of this and we'll talk about this more maybe as we go on again as shared in my testimony how god is preparing all these things i think it's just kind of cool from the perspective of this is our week coming up of prayer and fasting and that um, in, at least in our community, in our area, this is when COVID-19 is um, coming to play. This is our first Sunday meeting from afar, from a distance um, and such. And so that the Lord has worked it out, at least in my mind, for our assembly, um, that we would be already primed to be um, going before the Lord in prayer. Um, and potentially fasting, that's up to the individual as well, how you want to play that out in seeking um, his, um, his will for not only us individually, not only as our families, um, for our assembly, but for our neighborhood, for our community, for our state, for our, our country, for the world, 
um, and that um, maybe that there would be a great awakening. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But that's Christ's exhortation that, you know, power comes as a result of um, people spending time in prayer and fasting. And so as we get into it, I'm just going to ask you, do you really believe it? Um, do you really believe that um, that's a fact? I mean, Jesus, or do you think Jesus was just blowing words off? Um, and nobody would say, well, yeah, I think Jesus was just kind of just kind of stating that. He doesn't just state things. And so if that's the case, then if we are his and we're abiding in his word, um, in his word abiding in us, then that should mean something to us a little bit more. And so, um, especially in this day now when we're, kind of social isolation and stuff like that, you know, we can't say, well, you know, maybe I don't have that opportunity. So anyways, we'll talk about that more, but think about that as we go. The testimony of the early church then um, was such that if many people, backtrack here, um, many people discount Jesus's teachings. I know we don't, but many people do, um, even in our quote unquote realm, because they say that Jesus was, his teachings were kingdom oriented. So he was looking toward the millennial reign, uh, his millennial kingdom. And so that these teachings only apply to Israel in the millennial kind of sense. And I, I just, <clears throat> me, that's a bunch of bunk. Um, Jesus is God in the flesh. And I think if God says something um, and he's talking to his disciples about it, then that's applicable to me very clearly as a church. And so testimony to that effect is how did the early church and see that if the early church saw that as kingdom teaching and not applying to them then they wouldn't have necessarily applied it themselves but in acts 13 we see that the elders of antioch were already spending time in prayer and fasting they were praying and fasting when then the holy spirit um, communicated to them that they needed to separate barnabas and saul who we know became paul to the work that he had called them, and that was that they were going to go out as missionaries. And so, again, side application, you know, is it that the church, we're not seeing as many missionaries going out right now because we're really not spending time prayer and fasting? We're not seeking God's face in that, in that way, and so therefore we're not seeing um, that happening because really by faith we're not stepping out and, and looking to God in that. Then, um, after they knew that they were going to call out Barnabas and Saul. And the next thing they did was they spent time prayer and fasting for Barnabas and Saul when they laid hands on them. And then the churches of Asia Minor in Acts 14, as um, Paul went around and didn't spend a lot of time at each one of those locations, we're told that he appointed elders um, in each one of those cities as he went out and they did it with, again, prayer and fasting. So that, um, this was a situation that was greater. So even though we don't necessarily read about it on every page throughout the book of Acts, <clears throat> clearly the assumption is, in my brain anyway, that it's happening, that it's something that was going on in the church. They were, they were spending this time, at least the, the elders, um, and I don't think that it's just on to the elders. I think that, um, that it's for everyone and that the power of God working within an assembly is going to be from those within the assembly all seeking to be of one mind and of one heart and one will with he who is the head and that's not me and that's not me david and steve that's jesus christ and so that as we look to the head um to christ that we 
seek his direction and that he'll use <clears throat> individuals within the assembly um, to do his will. So from that, we want to slide into today's teaching on the heart um, of fasting as well. And that is that um, talking more of the motivation for fasting and how fasting not necessarily should be done, not necessarily the mechanics of it. We talked about that, right? It's, it's um, giving something up. And so in the Lenten season that we're in, um, you know, we note Lent from more of a perspective of it, more of a Roman Catholic situation or the Lutheran. I grew up um, as a Lutheran. Um, Lent was a big deal. Um, we went from Ash Wednesday all the way to Good Friday and, and those things. And so um, giving things up, I joked last week about how I used to give up giving up things. Um, so, um, but the idea of, of Lenten season, and so I, I want to make sure that we understand sometimes it's easy for us to, to kind of poo-poo traditions because we don't want to um, follow traditions. We want to follow the word. Um, and we don't want to be looking to traditions of men. But the concept of Lent was the idea of 40 days of fasting. Um, and so there was the, and they were prior to the celebration of the resurrection um, from that point of view. And so in preparation, so some then took it wrongfully, um, more in the, the works situation of um, we manipulate God or we, um, we atone for our own sins that way, and that's not the intent of it. Um, but I want you to think about it from the perspective, though, of a time of consecration and a time of preparation, that there was that. There was that concept. And so I know of people who every year during the quote-unquote Passion Week or the week coming up through there who take that time um, to, to meditate upon what Christ has done for them in a special way. And so I think that's um, when we have our week of prayer and fasting, I want to be careful that we don't use this as a, um, a program of the church. And so now we do this because this becomes church tradition. And yes, we're so holy and righteous because we do this twice a, twice a year. The, the original intent of this week is to be a teaching time to highlight the um, importance of prayer and fasting in the life of the assembly and in the life of the individuals within the assembly. And so that hopefully um, you individually um, are growing in an awareness of God's desire for you to be more and more intimate with him. Again, those Greek words, gnosko and oida, um, you know, a lot of people, oida, edo, um, God, they know about God, they talk about God, but they don't gnosko him. They don't know him uh, relationally and intimately. And Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, um, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And that's the word gnosko. And so Peter then says, as well, his final statement um, to the to believers, that they grow in the grace and in the knowledge that of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so um, the desire for us not to live a stagnant life, but to actually have this personal relationship that's vibrantly growing. And um, one of the ways that I do this, and so Paul talks, this is all free, this isn't on your sermon note sheet, but 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about how he, he buffets his body to bring it under subjection um, and, and, and beats his flesh. And that's the kind of the idea of this affliction thing with fasting is that I'm, 
I use this opportunity to bring my flesh into control of the spirit so that I am focusing more and more on God. And so the reality is that when you get hungry, you know, let's say, um, you know, you, you decided that you're going to fast tomorrow. And by fasting, you're going to say, maybe you're going to have, you're going to do the fasting of the daytime fast and not necessarily the, the day and night fast. You're only going to fast during the day. Um, and you're only going to, you're going to, you're going to eat after we pray or whatever. I'm not telling you what to do. Just say, let's, that's how you're going to do it. Okay. Well, the reality is that if you normally have breakfast, your body's going to start like, Hey, buddy, you missed something. And at that moment, you have a choice to make. You either give into the craving, the flesh, or you say, no, I love to eat, but I love God more. And, and what I want is, is him more than I want food itself. Man does not live by bread alone is what Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then to turn around and, and whether you're, it's where you're at that you, you're taking time in prayer, but you have fellowship with God that you turn your heart to God at that moment. And then all of a sudden at lunchtime, you know, your body starts to, you know, really it's like starts to rebel against you and saying, dude, you don't get this. You, you, we're two meals into this thing. And then by dinner time, now it's a real struggle. So by the time you get to the, the time of corporate prayer, you're already having a whole day of prayer. And so the time that we get to corporate prayer is just a matter of us gathering together. So, so I want you to think about that. So motivation wise, then um, fasting many times is used wrongfully because it's then focused on myself. And that's what Jesus then um, talks about. First of all, that there's that prideful side of it. And so if you would turn to Matthew six, okay. So I, um, if I start earlier than you, I apologize, but I purposely did not write my verses down put them on a piece of paper so that I'm going to have to turn as well to them to give everybody a chance to go since I'm not looking out at you all right now. It's kind of hard for me to know when you're there. So Matthew six, beginning of verse 16, we read moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, that they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in secret place. And your father who sees in the secret will reward you openly. And so Jesus, in that when you fast, continues it with, don't be like the hypocrites. And you remember the, the term hypocrite um, goes back to that the, the concept of um, the um, Shakespearean plays where they would put the, the mask over their face so they could play their different parts and, and be who they are. And so then they would take it away and that's who they are. And so hypocrite then is one who puts the mask up. And so we self-righteously can place that mask up um, in front of ourselves to make ourselves look spiritual. And that's what the hypocrites did. And so Jesus had already stated earlier in Matthew 6 how the hypocrites love to go out and they love to pray in open places. So Everybody knows that they're praying, but they don't pray in private. And Jesus said, well, don't be like that. You go into your private place and you pray. And so the same thing then with fasting, that if you're only fasting for other people to know that you're fasting, then you're fasting for the wrong reason, that um, it's supposed to be purely to God. And so, again, it's an important thing for me. It's hard because I know, um, just being straight, I, my own testimonies, right, that 
I'm pastoring and I'm leading this thing and I'm telling people to do this. And so, you know, there's this pressure on me that, so what am I doing for fasting? And should I let people know that I'm fasting and da, 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 da. And I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm going to do. Um, it may be that I don't fast at all. That I feel like this is something that the church needs to work on. And so I want to, um, I want that to be the case that, um, that, you know, at least as a whole, um, people don't know. Now people in my house will know, right? Um, but the reality is that it's to the Lord and it's not to man. When we start to think about men and seeking to please men or um, impress men, um, then our focus is totally, totally wrong as well. Um, Jesus discusses this as well in his parable in Luke 18. So turn to, to Luke chapter 18. When Jesus gives the, the parable of the two men um, who are praying, so Luke 18, beginning at verse 9, we read, Also Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioner, unjust, adulterers, even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house, justified rather than the other. For everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, this Pharisee, again, was trusting in his own righteousness. And so this concept of pridefully, doing it pridefully, if you would, in my mind, is also then intentionally. There is an intentional misuse of fasting in order to exalt themselves rather than exalting Christ or exalting God. This is then in opposition to um, those who potentially do this ignorantly. So turn with me to Romans chapter 10. And we may disagree on whether um, fully because um, everyone is a sinner, and I get that, and that there's none that is righteous, no, not one, and that you know we can debate that whether every intent of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. Um, and so therefore, whether someone can do this ignorantly, but um, I'm mindful in the, in the law that there were, various sacrifices um, given those that were done unintentionally and sins that were done intentionally. And so this is that concept, whether someone is pridefully, intentionally um, misusing this spiritual discipline to bring um, exaltation to themselves, or whether they are, I think, honestly, like many people um, in following religions today, that do things thinking they're doing them for the right reason, but they're doing it not really to God. And we see this in Romans 10, beginning of verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law 
for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so there's a point where the leaders, again, the Pharisees and the and such, they were doing it pridefully, but there were others who were following the example. And not necessarily in their heart were they doing it for the wrong reason. Now, probably a lot of them, probably true. Um, but potentially, Paul again says, um, I bear them witness, verse 2, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And I think that that's, again, what I want to go back to when I stated earlier about that, that relationship, that there are a lot of people who have religion, but they don't have a relationship. And that's what life eternal is. That's what Jesus said. This is life eternal. He gave the equation, um, the definition of it, and that is knowing God. Knowing God is to, to have eternal life. I have it. I can't lose it. I'm never going to die. My body may cease to exist. The tent that I live in may, may fall apart on this earth. It is in some ways already. But I will never die. That's what Jesus said to Martha um, the day with, when he raised Lazarus up. He says, you know, do you believe this? Do you believe it? And if we really believe it, it'll change the way we, we live on this earth. We're not going to be looking for more and more of this world. We're not going to be seeking to lay up treasures on this earth where the moth and the rust are going to corrupt it, but rather we are going to be laying up treasures in heaven. Now, the hard thing is, excuse me on that, the hard thing on all that is that in my motivation, I mean, if I am doing it so that I have more treasures in heaven, then really I'm still focusing on myself, ain't I? And so I've got to focus on God. Forget the treasures in heaven for a moment. Just know that Jesus told us that so we understand that that's there for us. But if I'm still focusing, at least this is for Bob anyway, and this is a struggle on Bob's brain, if I am only trying to elevate, like James and John, my position in heaven, may I sit at your right hand, Lord, and it's all about me. It's still about me. Whether it's here on the earth or whether it's in heaven, it's all about me. And my life needs to be all about God. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. This needs to be the mantra, in a sense, that is, that is about my life, that, that I need to live my life for Christ, not for Bob. Now, I know, intellectually, I know, I understand that Jesus has told us, look, it's, it's, there is that out there. You will be rewarded in heaven. Your reward will be there. If you do it for yourself, as we saw in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said they have their reward. The reward is here. Whatever reward you're going to get here, hope it makes you feel good because there's not going to be any in heaven. So if you're if you're seeking to gain everything you can here, better do a good job at it because on the other side, there's nothing waiting for you. And that's a struggle. That's a hard thing um, as we go on. So even as a believer, I want to make sure that my motivations are are pure. That um, and I I'm telling you, that's a struggle for me doing that um turn to isaiah 58 it's a long um passage but it's an important chapter and probably the chapter that i go to um to discuss the proper fast um when we discuss this and so as i was meditating and preparing um last week and this week for this 
I felt like the Lord was revealing to me how this was an um, really a, a picture of what Paul was talking about in Romans 10. Again, where there are going to be the leaders who are doing this wrongfully, but that sadly, and I say this sadly because it doesn't matter. Sadly, there were people who were following, and the blind were leading the blind. And I'm glad God is God, that He judges um, everyone, he, he searches their heart, knows their mind, um, and, and He will judge. Um, according to a proper justice and according to a proper righteousness. But sadly, there are a lot of people who are following false prophets and false teachers. And I think that's where the weeping will be um, when Jesus talks about that in, in times or in, in, in hell, in the separation from God from all eternity, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is going to be those false teachers and false prophets and the God-haters who are there. But the ones who are weeping, I think, are going to be the ones who realized that um, they played a game, and um, and they deceived themselves, playing at you know, following after religion, and not seeking a relationship with Christ. So Isaiah 58: Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. Delight to know my ways. Has this a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God? They ask of me the ordinance of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you have taken no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast in an acceptable day to Yahweh? Is this not the fast that I've chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of Yahweh shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and Yahweh will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. So Yahweh is declaring through Isaiah to his, his children, and he says, look, you're, you're playing a game. You're, you're doing this fast thing, and you're coming to offer your sacrifices. You're just punching tickets, like, like you can manipulate me, like, like all of a sudden you do this, 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 and this. And, and life is good, it doesn't matter, but that's not how it is. Rather, if my heart is really right toward God, then my heart is going to be right toward others. Jesus, when he was asked, he said, he was asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? He didn't pause, he didn't try to analyze, but he immediately came up with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, 
And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then he went on and he said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because the reality is that if I really, if, if I really love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, then I will love what he loves. He loves all men. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So if I really love God, if my motive is really there for God, then I will bear witness of it, not only with my words, but what I do in my life. So is this not the fast that I've chosen, verse 6, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free? As, a, as an employer, um, years ago with the, the home improvement business, I, I wanted to make sure that, that I adhere to that. I mean, that I'm not sitting there playing this spiritual game that I'm pompous and high, but then I'm abusing my employees and giving them the minimum wage, but requiring them to work double and um, treating them like they were slaves. Now, I did do that to my kids, my boys sometimes. They, had a, they were my pencil finders. I never could know where my pencils were. So there was a, part of the requirement was to know where my pencil was. But as a whole, I wanted to pay so that somebody wanted to work for me. Now you say that's selfish still, too. But in, the, in, the, in my mind, I wanted to treat them like I wanted to be treated if the, the, the things were changed. I've been on the other side where I felt like um, I didn't get paid, um, honestly, what I was worth. I'm not talking about from the church's perspective but from employment side, and that's hard. That's a very hard thing um, when you're going through that. So if you have the opportunity on your side then, how do you treat other people? Are you treating them like you would want to be treated if it was the other way around? Well, what about just in life then, as we look out and we see people who are in bondage? I mean, it could be an addiction, um, and, and addictions go to a whole lot of, a whole lot of things, it could be financially as well. Um, there are a lot of ways that we can look at this. Um, I, I think of the abortion industry as well, as I look out. Do I really care? Or is it just a religious thing for me? Like, oh, I, yeah, I hate abortion. Or do I really, really care? Um, so do I love the things that God loves or not? Do I really want what Bob wants? And so that's something, again, I have to continually work on, and I know it's a struggle for each one of us. There's no temptation or troublesome situations overtaking me, but such is common to man. And so I know that um, you all struggle in that same area as well, but that's where we need to press toward the mark for the prize. We need to continue to pursue to be uh, more and more set apart to God. And one of those areas then is in this area of prayer and fasting. Is my motivation right? As I go into the to spend time this week, um, that's a desire of my heart that I don't want to just fast just because, well, this is the week of prayer and fasting and I need to fast. And I don't want to just go into praying because, well, this is the week of prayer and fasting and I, I'm pastoring and so I've got to lead this and so I'm going to be here every night at seven o'clock. But I want to challenge my heart to that this is what I want because this is what God wants and that, um, and that that I rejoice in the opportunities for me to be 
drawing closer and closer and closer to him. So those are the, um, being used wrongfully, but here in the end, we want to look at how it's being used rightfully, okay? But it is focused on, on God. And so it's focused on God to show repentance. So turn with me to the book of Jonah. And a passage that maybe most people wouldn't even think about when it comes to um, a biblical teaching on, on what fasting is. But in, in the book of Jonah, we have such a, a great contrast between the prophet of God and um, those whom were um, pagans, if you would. So the prophet and the pagans. And it's the prophet who really is struggling in his relationship with Yahweh. The pagans hear the message and they respond to it. So in chapter 3, beginning at verse 5, this is after Jonah has proclaimed um, 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. We read, so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his noble saying, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything do not let them eat or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to god yes let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands who can tell if god will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we so that we may not perish and in verse 10 we we see then the result of that that god saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And so, so fasting can be a matter of showing then um, repentance, sorrow for our sinful situation. And that may be, honestly, part of what happens through the course of this week, is that maybe Lord uses some of this to convict you of, of sin or um that maybe you're not quite as right with him as you ought to be. Um, and then you take time to go before him, um, seeking his face and in and, and humility before him. Um, we're going to end with Second Chronicles 7, but I think this is part of, as, as, a, as a church as well, um, in the United States, I just, I would love the church of the United States to get this concept, this message, not necessarily my message, but this message from God. The, the concept of, of, of um, remorse and repentance and fasting and that they would turn their eyes to the Lord, that we would have this great awakening that's here. Um, we also see it um, in the proclamation of Yahweh in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. I'm not going to go there right now. You can look at that later. But in that passage, Yahweh is declaring through Joel to the nation of Israel that they need to fast, that they, that they need to, to do this. To, to humble themselves and to, to return to him, that it's going to be a part of their, their turning back to God. And so, again, he's talking to a nation, okay? So you had the Ninevites, who were the pagans, right? The Ninevites, who were the pagans. And then you got the Israelites, who are his chosen people or his children. And so this is a principle that, that transcends whether, quote-unquote, you're a Christian, a believer, or whether you're a non-believer, that this shows repentance toward the God who created all things. Second Samuel 12, 
15 to 23. Again, you can look at this one later for your further studies. This is this is David. And um, this is an interesting passage because this is the response of the king, right? Um, of David in his response to Nathan pointing his, pointing his finger in David's face saying, you are the man. David had just condemned um, the individual uh, in Nathan's story who was stealing the sheep of the poor man. And Nathan is using it because he stole the wife of Uriah um, and then had Uriah killed. And he says, you're the man. And this is then what's going to happen as a result of this. The punishment, the consequences is the, the child who has been conceived through Bathsheba as a result of this illicit relationship is going to die. So David then fasts. He, he lays himself out before the Lord and he, and he spends time in fasting during this time, praying and fasting, seeking God's face, showing repentance um, for what he had done. But what's interesting about this is, what's different from that of the Ninevites, is God says, no, no, it's, it doesn't happen this way. This is my judgment, and I'm not relenting from this one. As he relented from the what he was going to do to the Ninevites, he did not relent from the punishment upon David and Bathsheba, and that child still did pass away. So I want to, you know, to draw that back because again fasting isn't manipulation it's not god is in this this little lamp this genie bottle and we just rub it well enough and we we rub it right we, we do the right things we say the right incantations or whatever we do the right things god is then obligated to do whatever i ask him to do or tell him to do and it doesn't happen that way um rather it is a revealing my heart and i believe it really revealed david's heart and we read that in the psalms Against you and you only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. And so his heart was right. He was really repenting. But God said the consequence is still the consequence. And there were reasons for that that went beyond um, even that moment. That child would always be seen as the, the, the child of that illicit relationship. And so I don't want to read into God's thoughts there. But in my mind, as I've meditated upon that, I mean, I could see how that plays out. So God has his reasons and his purposes. But... God still reserves the right for to say no to us. And so we can be, um, let's say we get the entire um, U.S. Um, population of true believers fasting um, and praying um, and, and, and calling upon God um, to work in a mighty way for this nation. I can still say no. As a nation, you've, you've, you've shunned me. You've turned against me. You have, you have, suppress the truth and you've chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator and so the time is done just as he did for israel there was a period of time where he didn't listen to jeremiah he told jeremiah don't pray for these people don't even pray because i'm not going to listen to the prayer it's done it's over the judgment is now coming and so there is that time to come so god reserves that right um to regardless of our display to say no secondly is to show our dependence upon him so let's turn to ezra Chapter 8, Ezra 8. We saw this same concept then in the book of Acts with the, um, the elders of Antioch um, seeking God's face um, for wisdom and instruction. And here in chapter 8 of Ezra, verse 20, beginning verse 21, 
um, God has, has called his people back to the land. Um, Cyrus has already decreed that the temple should be rebuilt. And so um, there is this group of people who are going to go back with Ezra to, to begin doing this work. Um, and so Ezra states, verse 21, chapter 8, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us, in our little ones, in all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So this is a matter of the testimony of God at this moment. We've declared that our God is great. Our God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. But then we turn around and we trust in man. We ask man for his protection. We ask man for, for, the, for the escort. And Ezra says, I can't do that. Because I've declared that God is able to do, do these things. And so Jesus said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say that this mountain be removed and cast into the sea and it will be done for you. Not that I'm necessarily going to do it, but if God wanted me to do that, if God wanted me, to, as I'm looking out now from the window of the office, you know, I see the, the picnic bench that we moved over there, and, excuse me, into the woods. If God said, you know, I want that picnic bench to be moved and then I want it to be sitting in the middle of Answood Road, then I would be able to from this moment say, picnic table, be moved and cast into the, into the road. No, I didn't react, right? Whoa! You know, you say, wow, it happened, you know, but. Um, I don't believe that's God's will. I didn't believe God asked me to do that. But if God wanted me to do that, for whatever reason it was, it would happen. So, again, that's part of that prayer and fasting that we talked about that Jesus gave um, as the exhortation. That happens as a result of people who are praying and fasting. And so Ezra called for this fast so that God, they were he, totally dependent upon God, they would be totally focused upon God, and they, they would go in God's strength and God's might. And God answered the prayer, meaning that God went before them and gave them the protection. Also, we then have the, the testimony of Jehoshaphat. Turn to Second Chronicles. It should be just a couple pages back for you. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles 20, we read about this time when um, Judah was being attacked. And it says, It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them, besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. And some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask him help from Yahweh, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek Yahweh. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh before the new court, and said, O oh, Yahweh, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not God? who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? 
and they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Montseer, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they have turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us, by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not judge against them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before Yahweh. And the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all of you of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says Yahweh to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of Yahweh, who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for Yahweh is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his, his head and his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korites stood up to praise Yahweh, God of Israel, with voices loud and high. So they arose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in Yahweh your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he consulted with the people, he appointed those who should who should sing to Yahweh and who should praise the beauty of holiness. As they went out before the army and were sing, saying, Praise Yahweh for his mercy, his chesed, endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, Yahweh set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the, the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were dead there were their dead bodies fallen on the ground. No one had escaped. So again, note there was this um, this great affliction, this this awful time that was going on that was happening to the nation, similar to us, right? And instead of panicking, instead of worrying, Jehoshaphat led the people to turn to God and to seek God and his protection and all that. And God sent a prophet to tell them what to do, and they, that they didn't have to worry about it at all, that this battle wasn't really theirs, it was really God's, and God was going to win this battle. And so they sent forth the choir, not the, the, the army, the choir went first, praising God. And it was when, note what happens, when they did that, that's when God sent the ambush. God didn't set the ambush before their act of obedience. So again, James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. And so that 
their faith in, in the word of God and God's promise was displayed in how they approached this and how they went out. And when that happened, God then answered their prayer. And as they got then to that overlook, boom, God had already answered that prayer. And so do we believe that God is, is greater than, than any situation that can come upon us? Whether you believe COVID-19 is real or not real, whether it's, whether it's being used and manipulated um, by people in the world or in our government or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Assume for a moment that it's as bad as everybody says it is. Is God bigger than it? Of course he's bigger than it. I mean, does God allow it? Yes, God has allowed it. And God has allowed it for a particular reason and particular purpose. And for there, we need to give God the glory and praise. I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't know. Or I mean, I know what's going on in my life. I don't know what's going on in your life. Um, that's even beyond COVID-19. There are multiple things. David, you shared even in the testimony time. I appreciate that. Giving us the how God is sovereignly working in the affairs um, of Ben and Nancy as well in, in leading all that. And in each one of our lives, things are happening. But God is still... The, to coin the, or to take steel from uh, VeggieTales, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's greater than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. And so he, um, he's beyond all these things. And there's nothing that is able to, to, to go against him. Do I believe it? Am I willing to set myself apart? Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, is an important passage. Again, I know it's to Israel. I know it's to Israel. But I think it's applicable to us as well. I think the principle still applies. If my people, my people, not the world, not the pagans, not the entire country, but if my people who are called by my name, if they will do three things, note, if they will humble themselves, if they will pray and seek my face, and I believe that's earnestly, and if they will turn from their wicked ways, what's the assumption? His people have wicked ways. That's a desire to, to earnestly say, search me and know me, O God. Reveal within me the wicked ways. And that you humble yourselves seeking those things, that you pray and seek his face, and then you turn from those, that you confess them. First John 1, 8 to 10. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar. and His word is not in you. God wants us to turn from wicked ways. And if I don't think that there's any room for growth in me, then honestly, it reveals how much further away from God I am. There's always room for me to become more and more Christ-like. If my people will do these things, then the then. Then I will hear from heaven. Then I will forgive their sin. Not necessarily the, the land itself just yet, but your people, right? And then I will heal their land. I really believe that the healing in this land will come as a result of God's people. And I'm not talking about physical healing. I'm talking about spiritual healing. Of God's people humbling themselves and becoming right with God. and not worrying so much about all the things of the world, getting so caught up in the world. I'm no different than anybody else. I get that. There's so much place for me to become more and more set apart. 
And I think that we've lost that. And that's where we as God's people need to be fully focused on, on him and who he is. So how earnest are you in your walk with Christ? Is there a need then to, to change that? Do you truly desire to know him and serve him? Serve him? Or would he state that you're just playing religion? Um, and that's a hard thing is to be able to consider that from his perspective, not our own. You need to come back to the heart of worship. No, we're not going to sing that song. Um, I thought about that, but I don't want to sing that one a cappella. Um, and we're, we're, ah, come back to the heart of worship where it is all about God and not about self. That, that as I live my life, that I'm really focusing on Christ and on God. And that when I come, so, you know, here we are individually set apart, but so even at this moment, that I'm not coming for myself. Um, but I'm coming in order to glorify God. And then finally, as normal, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. We know that you alone are the mighty one. You alone are God. There is no other God but you. And so, Lord, I thank you for um, the opportunity for us to gather together like this, to be able to proclaim your word, teaching. I pray that it's impactful and that it's helpful. Um, for each of us, for myself as well, Lord, I know how much you have used it in my life um, in the past two weeks again of re-looking at this and considering this one more time. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be humble, to help me to have a true passion for you, to desire purity, um, to be holy as you're holy. I pray that for this assembly, Lord, that we would uh, not delight in, not desiring to, to do our own thing, but to, to seeking to magnify you, that we would desire to be sanctified, Lord, to be set apart, to be consecrated individually and as an assembly, Lord, that we might be used by you to impact our neighborhood, that we might be used to impact our community, we might be used to impact this world. Lord, I call for you, for you to work in your people, not just in Family Bible, but Lord, throughout the, the nation, that you would draw your people back to yourself. Those who are called by your name, Lord, that you would convict them even now through your Holy Spirit, um, convict them of their worldliness, <clears throat> that we as a whole um, would humble ourselves, Lord, that we would pray and seek your face, we would turn from our wicked ways, Lord, that we see you do a mighty work. It may be that you tell us no, that it's too late, but God, forgive us, forgive us for, for not earnestly seeking that more and more. Lord, I pray that you'll hear our prayer and that you'll be magnified in Christ's name. Amen.